0: Hello, Natasha Turner here, as ever, bringing you the latest episode of ESG Out Loud. Today, it's wonderful to be joined by Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School, whose work on ESG and sustainable finance has certainly caught the attention of our readers and listeners. Alex has written a book on ESG, given TEDx talks, spoken at the World Economic Forum, conducted a study into share buybacks, is holding a masterclass in sustainable investing. I mean, the list just goes on. So a bit later in this episode, we're going to discuss Alex's paper, Applying Economics, Not Gut Feeling to ESG. But first, Alex, welcome. Do you want to tell us a little bit just about your career journey and your personal journey in the sustainable investing space, just to start off?
1: Certainly. First, Natasha, thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Uh, maybe I'll go right back to the start. So, how did I end up in, in economics to begin with? Um, so, at school, I did A levels in English, German, economics, and maths. And that was a bit of a weird combination. So, many of my friends did purely maths, physics, chemistry. Other people did English, history, philosophy, so something purely arts. So, I did a mixture of both. And that's why I like something like economics, is that you do have theories. So, it's not just completely subjective opinion but those theories are not set in stone like physics so it could be that you and i can see the same data but i could think that taxes should go up and you could think that taxes should go down and we can have a respectful conversation where we might agree to disagree and i think that's important for something like esg where there's lots of different opinion but we can still have a respectful conversation so then i went on to study um, economics and management at merton college oxford then like many people who do that degree i went into the city i was an investment banker for a couple of years at morgan Stanley. And I really enjoyed my job. So you'll get a lot of ex-bankers who got worked really hard and mistreated. But I thought it was really interesting to work on some company's biggest problems. Uh, But for me, I was working on one company's problems at one time. Whereas when I looked at what happened in research and academics is if you wrote a paper that could apply to many companies across different, different industries and over many time periods. So I left to do a PhD at MIT, and this was 2003 to 2007, way before ESG became popular. It wasn't even a a term back then. Some people were using the term CSR, but not more than that. And that was when I wrote my first paper on ESG. And we're going to go into this, I'm sure, later. But at the time, I never thought about it as an ESG paper. I was thinking just about how to create long-term value. And I realized that how to create long-term value, it wasn't just through tangible things like balance sheets and machines, but intangible stuff. So this was my first paper on employee satisfaction, how companies that treat their work as well do better in the long term. Then I was a professor at um, Wharton in the US and now London Business School. And now most of my work is on what most people will call ESG, although I don't typically use that that phrase. But it's more on how to create long term value for both your shareholders, but also wider society.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that. No, I, I think that is really interesting because we're almost at a place now, it seems, where you've got one camp kind of saying we we still need to be talking about ESG, pushing the term, et cetera, to get people interested in this kind of investing. But on the other side, kind of like you were saying, I mean, it's, does it really even exist as a term? It's just good business management, et cetera, et cetera. With all the backlash that we're seeing, perhaps it'd be better if we didn't create a whole concept around it and so forth. That seems to be the place we're at. I mean, is that what you're seeing?
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Natasha. So I think the origins of the term are very interesting because how did E, S and G all come together to begin with? Because they're quite different things. So E and S, that's often about how to serve wider society, whereas the G is about how to serve shareholders and create shareholder value, which makes the debate seem quite odd at the moment because those who are against ESG, let's say Republicans in the US, they should absolutely not be against governance because governance is something that everybody should agree creates long-term value so why did they all come together um about i think 20 25 years ago it may well have been that people thought oh we need to look at these factors because these are factors which are intangible. They're hidden, they affect the long-term performance of a company, but they're a bit non-traditional. So they were all seen as somewhat non-traditional factors. And I think the term was useful because the term, I think it might have actually been about more well, 15, 20 years ago rather than 25, but the term back then was introduced in order to get people to start thinking about it who might not otherwise have thought about it. But now I think the term might have outlived its purpose because if you keep using that esg term it then seems to be something niche only for esg people whereas a lot of my writing is highlighting that if these things are creating long-term value then everybody should care about it doesn't matter whether you're democrat or republican these things create long-term value it doesn't matter whether you manage an esg fund or a mainstream fund, these are also things linked to the long-term shareholder returns. So I think that we're now at a point that people do recognise that some ESG factors do enhance long-term returns. So maybe it's outlived its phrase. Now, people do have attention. I don't think anybody can claim this is not something that people are aware of. They might disagree as to the extent to which it adds value, but that's fine. Right there's disagreement about many things. So everybody agrees that management quality adds value, but you and I might disagree as to whether a CEO is good or not. But that's that's that that's um, reasonable to have disagreement. I think everybody is aware of the issue or they might they might have different views as to how much it affects long-term returns.
0: And what about if you take the kind of other camp, basically the ones who are actually wanting to see not just long-term shareholder value but some real positive changes?
1: I think your question is an important one, because another problem with the ESG phrase, it means different things to different people. And that's what you're highlighting in your question. So I've already talked about the fact that ESG to some people, they only think about the E and the S and not the G, so what does it contain? But you Natasha, your question is asking about what the objective of ESG is. So for some people, ESG investing is just investing. It's a way of creating long-term financial returns. It's not to save the world, it's about creating financial returns. And then people like Larry Fink have said this, he says, well, climate risk is investment risk. He says ESG is its capitalism, it's about creating financial value. But then there's a separate reason for ESG, which is to create social value and to change the world, for example, to encourage companies to decarbonize, to encourage companies to change the mix of their workforce, even if it doesn't necessarily improve returns. And there, there is a trade off sometimes. um, But if so, investors should be upfront that the goal of ESG is to have impact, it's to change the world. And sometimes that might involve a, a sacrifice of returns, then I think ESG investing is different from investing because the goal of it is to create social returns rather than financial value. But then I think to use the same phrase ESG investing for for them is confusing. So I would call the first thing just investing or intangible investing, so using intangible information, but that phrase implies that you're trying to create long term returns. I would call the second impact investing, which is more the phrase which is typically acknowledged to involve a sacrifice. And then there's a third type of investing, which is values based investing. So, what do you mean by that? It, you mean that you're going to select a portfolio that accords with your values, irrespective of whether you think you have impact. And what's useful to um, disentangle values-based investing from impact investing is that it's relatively well known now that divestment might not actually change things much. So if I don't like tobacco stocks, I sell tobacco stocks. I'm not depriving tobacco companies of capital, because if I sell, it has to be that somebody else buys. But it may well be that I don't care about the fact that I'm not having an impact. I just morally think it's wrong for me to hold tobacco stocks. And so that third type of investing is values-based. But again, we want to disentangle those three because they will imply quite different types of strategies. So number one would involve just maximising your financial returns, holding anything you think might make money, irrespective of whether it accords with your values. Number two, impact might involve actually holding the tobacco company and engaging with it whereas number three would involve completely a disinvesting from something like tobacco or fossil fuels.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep I think that's that's very clear let's let's talk about your paper and then go into some of these points a lot of people will have read it but for those who haven't can you briefly summarize uh, what that paper was about um, and yes, yeah, some of the key kind of findings?
1: Certainly so the paper's called Applying Economics Not gut feel to esg um, and it tries to do exactly what it says on the tin so often the charge is that well esg investing is so new and finance textbooks are so stuck in the 1990s that we need to completely scrap the old textbooks and come up with something new and fit for purpose in 2023 Um, now as the writer of a new textbook i'd like to um support that claim. So many of your listeners will know the book Principles of Corporate Finance by Breeley Myers and Allen. That was the book that I read as an undergrad. We were all given it Morgan Stanley. I'm now a co-author of the 14th edition, trying to modernise it to bring about ESG issues. But to be honest, I didn't completely rewrite the book. Many of the principles of the book continue to apply as long as you sort of reapply it to the modern firm, where many assets are intangible, not tangible. So what I Try to highlight in this new paper was how we can use the tried and tested tools of mainstream finance to handle ESG issues rather than just making some up, stuff up based on, on gut feel. So let's give one example. So one um, charge that people will currently make is that many valuation methods like net present value, they don't work for ESG investments like carbon capture why carbon capture is risky if the project is risky the discount rate is high and therefore the present value is low therefore this is biased against taking carbon capture investments but that's not the case because uh, finance 101 tells you that risk only affects the required return if it's systematic if it's something that goes up and down with economic conditions now carbon capture technology could be really risky but whether the tech works or not is unrelated to whether the economy is in a boom or a recession so that risk is not systematic it shouldn't affect the discount rate and therefore you should give a big green light to carbon capture type investments and this encourages people to take those investments rather than turn that down so actually if you understand mainstream finance properly then you'll be much more supportive of many esg investments than you otherwise might Now, people might think, well, why did he need to write a paper to say this? Isn't it obvious from Finance 101 that we only care about idiosyncratic risk? But even if you take the CFA ESG investing certificate, which I generally really respect, if you look at the specimen exam, It has this question, does sustainability increase or decrease the cost of capital? People always think it decreases the cost of capital when, as I mentioned, many sustainability risks are idiosyncratic. They're specific to the firm. They affect the cash flows, but they don't affect the cost of capital. So that's one part of the paper there are 10 different myths in the paper that I try to debunk and overturn with with mainstream finance and so the nine others I'll just leave it to the interested reader to <laughs> go through himself or herself
0: okay great yeah thank you well okay so one of the things that you talk about then is uh, is double think right and the idea that uh, you can hold con- contradictory views at once right like outperformance and sustainability goals being reached at the same time, I hope I understood that correctly. What we've been seeing is that that outperformance message is kind of dropping off. And we sort of talked about this a little bit earlier. Is the dial kind of shifting on these kind of conversations? And what do you think is kind of the problems with these double think ideas that you talk about?
1: Yeah, so unfortunately, I'm not sure that the dial is shifting on, on these double think type ideas. So as to my earlier conversation about the taxonomy of the the, the three mechanisms, the three motivations, which are financial impact and values. As you explained, Natasha, many of the listeners will be familiar with that. They'll be disentangling those three and not getting them mixed up. But there are some who do get them mixed up and uh, they might argue that you can always have impact at the same time as you can improve your financial returns. Yet um, just basic finance theory suggests that if you are having positive impact by reducing a company's cost of capital you must be reducing your return because the company's cost of capital is the return to investors. So there are many even quite sophisticated investors or sophisticated companies or policymakers or actually even finance professors who claim that um, ESG will save the world by both reducing the cost of capital and also improving investors' returns. So I just wanted to highlight that, that this is not possible. And if you can only have one or the other, that's fine. Right, just be honest about it. When I go and buy organic food, I do this because I think it's good for society. I don't think it's good for my wallet but that's fine because my motivation is not a financial one, it's an impact one. And similarly, if a fund was to say, hey, we are going to ask a company to decarbonize, even if there is not yet a carbon tax, so there's not a financial incentive to do this, we just think that climate is such a huge issue that we're gonna get a company to decarbonize, even though it's in its interest to keep on polluting. That's honest you still will get many investors hopefully buying your fund. But unfortunately, it's even easier to get investors to buy your fund by giving them two promises that you will always um, decarbonize and you will always improve returns by doing so. So one of the goals of the paper was just to highlight that sometimes there are trade-offs you can't have both. And this will then hopefully try to address the backlash by people like Tariq, Fancy, and so on against ESG investing. Uh, And then when this backlash came around, the ESG crowd was really hurt by this and took it somewhat personally. And was was explaining that everything he said was wrong. When, in fact, even though one might not appreciate the tone with which he made some of his criticisms, some of the content was actually fair. Um, So some of the listeners may have seen my response to him called, is sustainable investing really a dangerous placebo? And like the starting point was before arguing against him to acknowledge that some of his points were actually right, in particular the fact that he argued that you can't always have it all in every case.
0: It sounds like a lot of, or some of the, the points uh, that you make and that he makes are, are similar, just in the sense that you, you need to have those distinctions really, really clear.
1: Absolutely. And and, and this, this seems to be sort of a no-brainer, but because there are people claiming that you can ha- always have both... Um, then if you're a fund which makes that claim, then you will get investors compared to one who says, well, actually, there might be a trade off sometimes. Sometimes we might not always be able to vote for every climate proposal because we think it's going to be in violation of fiduciary duty to generating long-term returns. And so that more nuanced message is a message which is not going to be as popular as the message that you can always get everything. And because ESG is, is such a new field, it's something where there's a lot of excitement perhaps not the expertise to go with the excitement. And therefore, if people are new to the field, they might believe in the false promises. So if you're an asset owner or asset allocator and an asset manager is making a lot of these claims, then it might be that you accept them uncritically. So one of the goals of my article was to explain and hopefully um simple language uh, and, and non-technical terms, but without dumbing it down, with still having um, the, the rigour behind it, uh, what you can hope to achieve with sustainable investing, and and what might be more out of reach.
0: And I think, I th- you know th- those sorts of issues are going to be, it seems, increasingly the focus of regulators as well. There's certainly that need for clarity. There's been, you know, in the UK, but in the EU and elsewhere, uh, talk about you know cracking down on greenwashing by really making sure that these claims are really clarified and everyone understands them, etc. A part of this, it seems to be. Is this engagement versus divestment kind of discussion? You mentioned it earlier, but it just seems like it's going to be such a big focus at the moment of this year because um, of that increased regulatory focus in the UK. We've got the SDR coming up, and that that middle bucket with those transitioning funds is just you know it, it's going to mean that asset managers have uh, just an extra owners to explain their engagement policies, right. And how, and how they're actually justifying some of their holdings. So, you know, and we're in AGM season, so that obviously puts the sort of focus on engagement too, but what do you think, and I know you spoke a little bit um, earlier about kind of engagement versus divestment, but what do you think of this whole kind of debate and where we're in with this uh, area right now?
1: yeah, so there's two questions in in what you're um asking, Natasha, both of which are important. So the first is what is the role of regulation and what can it achieve? So I'm someone who's definitely in favor of regulation. So I'm not a complete free marketer who thinks we can just leave it to the market to solve these issues. But I would also say be realistic as to what regulation can achieve. So regulation is pretty good at um measuring quantitative stuff, but um, a lot of these issues are are more qualitative. For example, as a regulator, you might be able to say, hey, this fund is voting for every shareholder proposal on ESG um, and another fund is not. But does that mean that the first fund is actually more ESG? Maybe no, because it could be that some of these ESG proposals involve micromanagement, they're on immaterial issues. It might be that another fund is engaging more behind the scenes, but because you can't really clearly disclose the topics of the behind the scenes conversation, it's much harder to uh, convey the approach. So um, with regulation you can only say well did you vote in this way or, or, or did you not it is more difficult to look at the actual quality of engagement rather than the quantity. Um, so yes we should obviously try to make sure that funds do what they say but there's a limit to how much you can do this because regulation might just encourage more box ticking types of engagement rather than the ones that that create value and notice that if we want to stop greenwashing, Greenwashing is not just an issue for ESG funds, but any fund can engage in greenwashing. So if I call my fund a value fund, do I truly invest in good value stocks? Right, An investor in a value fund deserves as much protection as an investor in an ESG fund. So if I end up buying stocks that end up being va- bad value at the moment, you don't get shamed at all by the media for greenwashing. But I think you, you should be held to the same standard. So to the extent to which we want to make sure that funds do what they say, I think any thematic fund should do that. A value fund should truly invest in valuable, in, in, in good value companies. A growth fund should truly invest in a fund with, with in stocks with good growth prospects. The second question, that you asked, is, is this divestment versus engagement issue? And again, I think the truth is a bit more nuanced than what people think. So right at the start, I think people thought divestment is clearly the best way to hold companies to account. You deprive companies of capital. And now it's gone to the other extreme. People think divestment has no value at all because if you sell, then somebody else buys. Whereas if you engage, well, this is something where you're always going to be able to change a company. But I think with engagement, even that, um, it can work, but it's often expensive. So engine number one, they spent, I believe it was at $30 million to get the climate finding directors on board um, when they had a stake of $50 million. So they had to spend 60% of their stake in order to change that. And also, sometimes it may be that companies have got these things under control. As an outside investor, it may well be that you're uninformed compared to a company, so engagement could be micromanagement. Um, So where engagement can work sometimes, it's not always the case that every fund which is always engaging is always doing um, good stuff. And sometimes divestment might work, in particular if divestment is in primary capital markets. So if I'm a debt investor, and I choose not to lend then that could actually be depriving a company of capital there's a nice paper by Daniel Green and Boris Vallet of Harvard Business School which suggests that actually if you're divesting in terms of bank lending that does have an effect even though divestment by equity mutual funds the effect there is a bit more limited
0: mm-hmm. I mean it seems like a lot of what you're saying and all these points is is really about the nuance behind it it can be the ca- one case in one situation but not in another you know comparable situation and just as you're talking about all these things i'm i'm just wondering you know for a fund selector for example i mean what how do you get to these nuances
1: so i think it's something that you you can't just find out with desktop research just by looking at things such as votes against management or number of meetings held these things will come through the rfps and will come through interviews of of the fund management so to ask well what is your approach on on this issue give me examples of when you've done x and when you've done y um just like how how would you hire a person right you wouldn't just look at their cv you would interview them and and ask them questions so yes people say oh it's the approach that i'm suggesting of qualitative stuff such as interviews, that's laborious. But any big important decision that you make will be based on qualitative factors as well as quantitative factors based on meeting the people you're hiring or meeting the people you're trusting your your money to. So I think actually asking people about this and seeing whether they do understand the nuances is important. Uh, There might be some investors who've taken a contrarian view on something. So let's say you're Schroder's and you choose uh, not to support the living wage vote at Sainsbury's. Now you can try and find out why why that is. Is it that they just don't care about uh, how workers are being treated and they're only about financial returns? Well, if so, then you could accuse them of greenwashing because they're not sustainable regardless of what they say but actually Schroeder was proactive and released on their website um, an argument as to why they weren't doing it they thought that this was something where there'd be a trade-off with competitiveness given none of their competitors were doing this it was also something they thought Sainsbury's um, did have under control in terms of employee relations now you could choose to disagree with that position and then you could choose to speak to Uh, the management of of those funds and ask them um, some tough questions. But I do believe that troders did put an argument out as to why they took their approach. And so rather than just saying, hey, no, we're not gonna look at you because you didn't support this, um, just to see why they chose to do what they're doing. And similarly, If you voted for it, it doesn't mean that you get a a green light. So if you are one of the investors who who supports nearly all of these resolutions, actually as an asset allocator, you could ask them why they choose to do this. Um, Are there times in which they choose not to support a vote and and, and what are those times? And if they can't give a good answer and they said they typically just automatically support every resolution, then that might also be a red flag.
0: Last sort of point um, that I want to make on this before we just move on is um, talking a little bit about uh, net zero. So I think we're we're seeing more kind of scrutiny on this. There was a time when um, everyone was making their net zero commitments and leaving it at that. Um, and now we're starting to see this being looked into the progress on those commitments being lacking um the kind of lack of real world outcomes from the alliances and so forth so what's your take on that and and is this kind of linked with with everything you've been saying and is that why that we're seeing that kind of um uh, uh lack of output
1: yeah, so this phrase net zero, that seems just such a powerful phrase, don't we all want to be net zero, but actually it's really unclear what net zero means to begin with. So as an investor, why do you want to have a net zero portfolio? Now, my question might seem to be sacrilege, isn't it obvious that you want to decarbonize your portfolio? No, we want to decarbonize society. Right. So if I make my portfolio net zero by selling um, fossil fuel companies, I'm making another um, a- a- another person's portfolio really carbon emitting, because if I'm selling, then somebody else is buying. And my act of moving towards a net zero portfolio myself is not necessarily going to be decarbonizing the economy because I don't have any stakes in fossil fuel companies, and I don't have a seat on the table to uh, ensure that they actually decarbonize. It's also really difficult to know how to measure net and how to measure zero. So at the moment, net zero is often people's commitments and they're not even commitments, they're they're pledges. So if say Microsoft say, I'm gonna be carbon negative by 2030, um, does that actually mean that they're gonna be getting there? It's, It's not clear. You often can call yourself net zero based on some future promises. It's not even clear what net is. So if you achieve net zero by reducing your emissions, to me, that is better than achieving net zero through offsets, because if you plant a tree that could be cut down later, but both of those things get counted um, together. Also, where do you draw the line as to what's net and, and, and what's not, what's within your remit? So if I am a semiconductor company, That's actually quite bad for the economy because when you produce semiconductors, you release perfluorocarbons into the atmosphere and that's bad for trapping in heat. But if the semiconductors end up being used in solar panels, well, that could actually be net positive. Um, So all of this is saying is that um, don't just be uh, seduced by the fact that a fund claims to be net zero, what actually counts in terms of that calculation. And if the um, fund is not net zero, but it's trying to make the economy net zero by buying, emitting companies and holding them to account, then this is a, um, this may well be a laudable approach if indeed they are taking some actions to hold those companies to account.
0: Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Well, just finally then, so what, Where do you think kind of we're at and where do you think we're going with these kinds of discussions and debates and in this industry? And then also, you know, in a perfect world where everyone's read your paper and we go forward from there, what would you like to see happen in this industry and in this space?
1: I'd like this discussion to be similar to the discussion about quarterly earnings. And you might think, well, that's crazy. Like quarterly earnings, that's the most evil thing. Isn't that the opposite of where we want to get to? But with quarterly earnings, well, when this came out, people said, okay, this is great. This is a way of measuring everything. We can compare companies according to quarterly earnings and the ones with the highest quarterly earnings are good the ones with the lowest are bad because they're now on a comparable basis. Now people realize that quarterly earnings are only partially informative. If your quarterly earnings are high, that doesn't mean we should jump for joy because you could have increased this by cutting your investment, cutting your expenditure on your employees. So the big question is not whether your earnings have gone up or down, but why have they gone up or down? And similarly, if a company has moved towards a net zero portfolio, how have you achieved it? It is it, is it that you've kept your existing portfolio and encouraged those companies to decarbonize? If so, we think that's a good thing. Or is it that you just happened to sell a fossil fuel company and bought, say, Microsoft, which has pledged to go net zero? Well, then we don't think that you've got you've had the same impact. So certainly, yes, we do want to look at a company's carbon footprint. I'm not advocating completely get rid of those measures. But when we get to a point where we just use those measures as the starting point of a conversation and then figure out sort of why I think that's good. Unfortunately, now it's um, that that um, that measure is the end of a conversation is if a, a fund doesn't claim to be net zero or striving for net zero, then then it may be an asset allocator is not even going to bother it to bother having a conversation with it. It's going to be just off its radar screen
0: raising the sophistication of the conversations and addressing those nuances, that seems uh, like the kind of perfect ending message. So that was brilliant. And thank you so much for uh, joining us. Uh, it was really interesting to have you on.
1: Thanks so much, Nash, Nash. I really enjoyed being on. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.